The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Broback. And this week, we are not discussing a novel. We are discussing a short story and a bit of a different short story at that, namely Detective Parker Pine and the case of the discontented soldier. I suppose the best way to get into this is to actually talk about the publication history since it's it's a little complicated, right, Catherine? Yeah, it is, and it's a little bit weird, which I think that that can just be said about these Parker Pine stories. So, mm-hmm. okay, well, it was first published in the U.S. in Cosmopolitan Magazine in August 1932. Not your Helen Gurley Brown version. Um, that would have been <laughs> a little bit more exciting, like racy illustrations in it. I kind of wish it was the Helen Gurley Brown version. I mean, it, 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 I suppose there are very much ways in which this story, too, could <laughs> be spiced <laughs> up by that. It was published with a bunch of the other stories that ultimately are the Parker Pine stories, and they were all called, Are You Happy? Question mark. If not, consult Mr. Parker Pine. Which is the way that his ad reads. That Correct. He puts in the newspapers. Yes. Right. Yes. So then it gets published uh, in the UK later, October 15th, 1932, in Women's Pictorial. But then it has another title because this is now called The Case of the Discontented Soldier, but it is also called Adventure by Request. And then it's published in the collection that probably everybody has read it in, which is Parker Pine Investigates in 1934. Interestingly enough, not by Collins Crime Club. Right, by another subsidiary of, of William Collins, right? Or just, just William just, Collins well, Just and William Sons, Collins. And then the weirder thing about that, and I suppose somebody um, who's listening who knows more about this might have an explanation, but I think the same year, the Listerdale Mystery... Um, which is another short story collection, which we will get to very shortly. That was also not published by Collins Crime Club. Right, and those are the only two, right, within Christie's of excluding the bodily head ones and even in the beginning, the before first couple they, right, of before they, ones. Before they right. did Collins Crime Club, yeah. Right, yeah, it's curious. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure why that is the case. And then to complicate things even further, and we mentioned this in our last episode, but normally when we start in on these short story collections, we will start with the first story, but we are not actually doing that. This is the second story within the Parker Pine Investigates collection. And the reason we are doing that is in our last novel episode, Cards on the Table, we were introduced to Mrs. Ariadne Oliver, and we wanted to cover the short story in which she appears, and that would be this one, The Case of the Discontented Soldier, number two within the overall collection. So that is where we are. Let's get into this case and this discontented soldier and talk about our victim. So our victim is Miss Frida Clegg, who is um, a lovely, innocent, damsel in distress, young blonde woman, and she goes through a series of unfortunate events. 
Yes, she does. <laughs> and I'm already sighing because it's time to talk about our suspects. And unfortunately, this is one of the more uncomfortable Agatha Christie short stories because our main suspects here, and you should know us well enough that we would not be going here if we didn't have to, but our main suspects are two black gentlemen. Their race is specifically identified, and that is key to the plot, sadly. And, oh, and they it's brought are up, said, it's brought up multiple times also. So <laughs> it is brought up a lot. In, in various levels of offense, I would say. Yes, with various levels of offense. I don't think we need to dwell on the terminology used, it's, I think, obvious enough <laughs> that, um, not how ideal. uncomfortable it is, yes, that this isn't yeah. an ideal situation. But they are said to, or really observed, to be attacking Miss Frida Clegg. By the way, I guess we also should have mentioned, well, Frida Clegg is not murdered. This is one of Agatha Christie's more adventurous stories. This is not a murder mystery. And we often come across this in short stories. So in that these gentlemen are observed attacking Miss Clegg, or are they? They are suspects in terms of being the ones who are behind this series of unfortunate events that poor Miss Clegg experiences. Right. And in, in presumably they have been sent by another shadowy figure who we don't actually see in the course right. of events, who is... Um, a mysterious lawyer who has been hounding Frida for her late father's papers. Correct. Those are our suspects. Obviously, this is a, an untraditional Christie story, and I think it makes sense just to dive right into the world as it appears to be to explicate what the heck is going on here. So let's talk about Parker Pine. Mm-hmm. Parker Pine, Mr. Parker Pine. And this is the final major detective character that Agatha Christie created and to whom we have yet to be introduced, I believe. And note, I did say major. I'm not saying that there aren't other detective or detective-like characters we will come across in later novels and stories, but in that he has his own collection. One can argue Parker Pine is a major detective character of Christie's. <laughs> if one can even argue that Parker Pine is a detective, which I would... Um... Yeah. <laughs> Catherine is right. Parker Pine does not hold himself out as a detective. It's interesting because I think he provides a counterpoint to so many of Christie's other detectives. To quote the man himself, I am, if you like to put it that way, a heart specialist. Parker Pine is just kind of interested in people and wants to make people happier. That's it. So it's true. That's not, and that's not really a concern that most detectives per se have. I mean, you're, so sounding, you're sounding like he's one step away from like Dr. Phil or something. We asked them both to take a polygraph. He said no. She said yes. <laughs> he kind of is, let's be honest, right? He's closer to a Dr. Phil or a Dr. Oz. Dr. Oz says there's something inside of us that we all have that plays a key role in making us fat. In terms of professionals today than any of the array of modern detectives that we could point to. I think it's absolutely warranted to compare him to those pop psychologist characters because Pine himself also does that. And in this very story, he says, and I'm quoting again here, I stand in the place of the doctor. The doctor first diagnoses the patient's disorder, then he recommends a course of treatment. There are cases where no treatment can be of any avail. If that is so, I say quite frankly that I can do nothing about it. But if I undertake a case, the cure is practically guaranteed. But the interesting twist on Parker Pine's methodology is that it's actually based on something quite hard and scientific, and that would be statistics. And I'll quote again here from the beginning of our story. 
You see, for 35 years of my life, I've been engaged in the compiling of statistics in a government office. Now I have retired, and it has occurred to me to use the experience I have gained in a novel fashion. It is all so simple. Unhappiness can be classified under five main heads. No more, I assure you. Once you know the case of a malady, the remedy should not be impossible. And I don't know about you, Catherine, but I feel like that begs the question what exactly those five types are. Not that we ever seem to get an answer, but before we move on from Parker Pine as a character and get into the case at hand, we'd be remiss if we didn't make a comparison between him and another famous statistics-loving character in a detective series, one Mycroft Holmes, who also didn't really fancy himself a detective, but was a kind of specialist. And of course, Mycroft Holmes, like Parker Pine, was also rather fat and rather sedentary, and Christy, as we know from her incessant references to Holmes, starting with The Mysterious Affair at Styles and continuing throughout her career, was a huge Arthur Conan Doyle fan. So that's interesting. He puts himself up as a detective, although his ad certainly is ambiguous and odd enough that I suppose we could argue that anyone who answers the ad is on notice that this is going to be something outside the box, shall we say? You were asking for some trouble if you answer that ad. (laughs) (laughs) And so what we also find out pretty much immediately is that Parker Pine essentially specializes in what I would call interactive theater experiences. So the problem with even calling this a mystery short story is that the mystery of it for the reader, I mean, we know that Parker Pine is creating something up front. Right. He's concocting some sort of a scenario to make his clients' lives better. That is what his end goal is. His end goal isn't to solve a mystery. It's just that in the course of his concoctions, mysteries occur or thrilling scenarios occur that have their resolution in their sort of madcap Christie way. This is this is certainly a throwback to thriller Christie. Definitely so. And it also feels a little bit like the setups for these Let me put it this way. I'm surprised that there's not like an app manufacturer out there who's come up with a dating service that is basically this. Let's get into what's what's happening here, because I think that's a good point. So we said that Parker Pine provides adventure. He tries to make his clients lives better. And that is exactly what Major Charles Wilbraham needs now that he's back from his adventures in Africa. He is just bored. He's back in England. He sowed his wild oats. He did his thing in Africa, and he doesn't have much of a purpose now. So when he saw this ad, he figured, okay, I'll give it a go. (laughs) So what does Parker Pine do, Catherine? So he sets him up first with, like, I mean, he hears, like, adventure, basically. And so he essentially sets up a scenario that ends with a meeting with this vampy kind of temptress who Major Wilbraham is not having. He is off-put by her. Because it turns out, you know, he likes his innocent, delicate blonde girls. Pine now knows this, and so he decides, well, he knows just the solution to this. It was pretty much unbeknownst to Wilbraham because, you know, obviously it wouldn't be an adventure if you knew what the solution was. Basically, Wilbraham is just told to go to this address in Hampstead. 
where what happens? <laughs> well, he actually doesn't get to the house that he is told to go to, right? Before right. he gets to it, he hears a woman's cry and perhaps a, a cry similar to the cry of distress that we play on our mystery series button at the beginning and end of each episode. <laughs> Something along those lines, although perhaps a bit more urgent. Well, since it, says he... it says it was a gurgling, half-choked cry. <laughs> Ooh! So he runs in the direction of the cry, and he finds Miss Frida Clegg, our victim, being violently attacked by yes, two black gentlemen, and oh, that too, is specified. Two enormous. Um. Is how it's described. Yes, their size is also noted. And he beats them off and he he rescues her and they run away. And then he takes her out for some coffee to soothe her and and help her collect herself, gentleman that he is. Yes, she's described also, which I find interesting, as pretty in a rather colorless way, which sounds unappealing. (laughs) You know, we get the sense that Parker Pine uses the vampy temptress as his first go because a lot of people will just go for her but then if they don't she obviously figures out who is more his type and she tells him it's a colorless blonde right our third person narrator i don't think necessarily thinks much of miss frida clegg's looks but she is perfect for major wilberham right she's Uh, not necessarily a renowned beauty let's just put it that way <laughs> so they get their coffee and mm-hmm. Frida is real open with everybody as it turns out. <laughs> she tells him her entire life story. So, you know, she's an orphan, she's like a clerk um at the vacuum gas company and a Australian lawyer showed up randomly to her apartment. And said, because this is always a, this is always a good sign. He said that he (laughs) knew her late father and that he thinks that there might be a financial benefit to Miss Clegg. Then he asks Frida for basically all of her father's papers. (laughs) And she, guess what? Hands them over. (laughs) Yeah, she hands them over and he's like, yeah, so I'm just going to take these. Mm Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, but I'll be back. And I was expecting the story to go south there, but no. (laughs) Yeah. It actually does not. She may not be the sharpest tack in the box. (laughs) So she gives him the papers, and then she gets this notice to show up at this house, White Friars, in Hampstead. Where she is then jumped by said men of a certain ethnicity. So Wilbraham now is all about this, and he's on the case because he takes a very protective stance toward Miss Clegg here. It's just so fortuitous that... As he was on his way to this other appointment that he was able to save her and and he just forgets about that other appointment and he's all about Miss Clegg. So he tells her that she must have something in the papers that she doesn't even recognize. She doesn't know what she has, but perhaps he can use his years of adventuring in Africa mm-hmm. to look for a clue. So he's like, well, let's go back to your place. Yeah. And... They do indeed. Yet again, in the course of a week, Frida lets another strange man into her apartment to dig through her father's I was just going to say, I feel like Frida, Frida Clegg is, um, she's playing with fire. It's kind of like, do you remember there's that beat within Sense and Sensibility, the book, as opposed to the movie, where Marianne goes to Mr. Knightley's house or, or what will become his house when he inherits it from his aunt mm-hmm. alone. 
Yes. And Eleanor is like, mm, girl, no, you shouldn't be doing that. That's that's not right. And she's like, ugh. She basically has no truck with that moral fussiness. But in the end, Eleanor, of course, is proven right. And I have to say, Miss Fr- Frida Clegg here perhaps should uh, take out her Jane Austen and learn a thing or two. You know what I mean? Yep, I would say so. Anyway, <laughs> they find in the lining of her father's trunk this piece of paper that conveniently it's written in Swahili, which it turns out Wilbraham can read. <laughs> and this is also lucky. Also lucky. And it mentions uh, hidden ivory, like a cache somewhere of hidden ivory. So, of course, Frida just lets him keep this paper. She's just handing out papers to strange men willy-nilly, and she gives it to Major Wilbraham. And he tells her, much like the strange lawyer did, I'll get back to you. I'll call you. You don't call me. I'll, I'll call you. And the next day, though, it seems that she called him. Yeah. And he gets a message from Frida Clegg asking to meet back at the House of Doom where Frida was jumped by those strange men. Well, or outside and, of it, basically. <laughs> yeah, or outside of it. And before he goes, he mails a letter, and it's a little bit mysterious, but he seems to have something up his sleeve as a resourceful fellow. And he mails that, and then he goes to meet Frida. And in that house, Frida is certainly there, but unfortunately, she's tied up. And he also gets hit over the head, which seems to be the common trope within an Agatha Christie thriller. You know if some dude is getting hit over the head with, like, a pipe. (laughs) Yep, this is a thriller. We're in a thriller. Hello, Tommy. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, he wakes up from getting hit over the head, sees Frida tied up, he's tied up. And then the room starts to slowly fill with water. Yeah, and, and they, they also they also never see this again mysterious lawyer. They just hear him in the distance as they await their drowning. They, they hear his voice over an intercom because this whole thing wasn't cartoony enough. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. They're like, you know what this needs? A disembodied voice going, whoa, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> Right, and so after, <laughs> and, and during the period when Bullram is uh, knocked out, the paper that he has in his pocket, which he was supposed to bring back, to Frida, so the Swahili document, it, Mm -hmm. uh, of course, goes missing. So then they are like a trickle-down, drowning death waiting to happen, but he, of course, fights his bonds free and then, like, helps Frida struggle out of hers. We've mentioned this before. This is textbook Bond villain choosing the slow, inefficient, and easily escapable death for our hero and heroine. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> they escape. He gets Frida to safety. And then he proposes to her. They marry. They go to Africa to uh, look for this ivory. Right. He brought the spoof document. He brought a spoof map to the house. And that's what was lifted off of him after he was conked over the head. And he mailed himself the real map. So after they marry, they're able to go to Africa with the real map and look for the ivory. And the story ends on them in Africa, at least as far as they know, the story ends with them in Africa. And each of them thinking to themselves how when they answered that ad from this strange Parker Pine, that it's a shame that it didn't work out. Yeah, (laughs) basically. basically. It's a shame that Parker Pine's plans for both of them, we learn at the last minute that Frida Clegg was also a client of Parker Pine. It's a shame that Parker Pine didn't actually do anything for them. But also neither of them tells the other that they had separately hired Parker Pine. Which... 
I guess fair enough because maybe they would be a little bit embarrassed. I mean, as we said, it is weird to answer a newspaper ad that says, are you happy? If not, consult Mr. Parker Pine. But certainly that could happen at a future date. But whatevs, they're already in love and they're married. So case closed. Except then we find out that... Parker Pine, for whatever Parker Pine does, Parker Pine doesn't actually craft his intricate thrillers. He outsources them. Who does craft his intricate thrillers, Catherine? Oh, it might be Mrs. Ariadne Oliver. Ariadne Oliver! And this is how we are introduced to Ariadne Oliver. And it seems that she concocted the whole thing, even down to, I'm sad to say, the black men who were yes, hired. She does make a point about that yet again when she's talking She does to make a point Pine. of that. So we do know that that was Ariadne Oliver's idea. Gotta say, I wished for a little better for my introduction to Ariadne Oliver. Well, and Parker Pine criticizes her for the water dripping, potential drowning death for being a little over the top. Right, exactly for what we've criticized that trope before. He's a critic, just as we are, but she kind of schools him on the fact that its familiarity is exactly why it works, because people respond to what they recognize, and that's part of the power of the story that she concocted, which as a meta statement, I gotta say, it's not often that you hear an author opining through her fictional counterpart about the value of being unoriginal. (laughs) I suppose so. That in Uh, itself is original. uh, Well, it is. And as as we know from uh, Mrs. Oliver, she's very blunt about her craft. She is. She does not. She does not have a lot of pretensions about what she does. So we really from the get go here, and, and this is something that we dwelled on a lot in Cards on the Table, we quite enjoy Christie's self deprecating view of herself through Ariadne Oliver. So that clearly is a consistent part of her character from the very beginning. We do also get her eating an apple. (laughs) She's got her bag of apples. Yeah, she does. (laughs) And by the way, I did also appreciate that Parker Pine has, like any good businessman, one of those money back, if not satisfied clauses. Right. Because that's what Major Wilbraham, when he's thinking to himself, he's like, oh, I missed my window for being able to get my money back from that dreaded Parker Pine who never actually did anything for me. But obviously his assumption is that his clients will get so caught up in what they think is an independent adventure slash romance that they will not, in fact, collect on that. And he did not. So... Parker Pine is good at what he does. He had two clients and those clients are happy now. And I agree with you, Catherine. I think there's a modern spin on this story that one could do in which there's like an algorithm through an app that is basically just connecting lonely people that need adventure and that will work together. Right. I mean, that's kind of what Internet dating is supposed to. I kind of feel like there have been some attempts at like matchmaker services where like they come up with like a themed meeting for you, like a art adventure or something like that. But I mean, nothing, nothing this elaborate, certainly. Right. It's a charming little story other than the the racism, which is a big (laughs) but that mars it considerably, I got to say. But it's charming. It's light. It's frothy. Tonally, it's very much like the Tommy and Tuppence short stories that we also covered. Christy wrote so many of these stories in the 20s and 30s. A lot of these collections came out in the mid 30s, and that's why we're covering them now, because we're trying to be vaguely chronological with how we go through these short stories. And... 
it's impressive, the output, but a lot of these stories do feel like Busman's holidays almost for Christy as a writer in that she's she's just doing something very different from the tightly constructed mysteries that she wrote in novel form. You know, Right. The gradation between something like Poirot investigates to Parker Pine investigates is pretty great. Yeah. I know that I read all the Parker Pine stories at some point. I do not remember a one of them, which perhaps is telling. So I don't know if all of them are as, quite frankly, disappointing as this one, but... We shall find out. Yes, we will. Before we wrap up on this episode, we we should also talk about the adaptation of this story. Because Mm -hmm. yes, dear listener, there actually is an adaptation of this short story. It was episode five of ten of this curious series called The Agatha Christie Hour that aired in the early 80s. And for this, as for all things Agatha Christie on screen related, we turned to our friend Mark Aldridge and his book. Essentially, it was this 10-episode series that was produced by the production company Thames, which is technically a separate company from London Weekend Television, but these were the same people, in particular the same producer, her name was Pat Sandis, who brought us Why Didn't They Ask Evans, as well as The Seven Dials Mystery via London Begin Television a few years earlier. (laughs) And the reason why we're getting these, we would call them lesser Christies, adapted is that, remember... Back in the 70s, when London Weekend Television got permission to adapt Christie stories, they could only do so with properties that were not Poirot or Marple, which is why we have these stories adapted first and extremely faithfully, sometimes slavishly so. London Weekend Television also, of course, did the Tommy and Tuppence adaptation, starting with The Secret Adversary, which we already covered, and then the Partners in Crime series, half of which we've covered. So (laughs) I think a, a big compliment to this series and all of the London Weekend Television and Thames productions is that they were crucial stepping stones to what we got in the later 80s with the Joan Hicks and Marple series and then, of course, the David Suchet Poirot series. Because if they hadn't done this and if they hadn't gained the trust of the Christie estate, which had been so burned on, in particular, those MGM movies in the 60s, which we've also covered a little bit, the Margaret Rutherford Marple series. I know there are, there are big fans of it. I don't even necessarily hate it as much as, as some people do, but that series and then the Alphabet Murders, <laughs> dare I bring that up, for Poirot, mm-hmm. which is in the same vein, they were so burned on that that it really did take doing these other novels and short stories and adapting them faithfully to get to the point where we were able to get our beloved Joan Hickson and David Suchet and then even the later Marple series. And now, of course, we're in kind of a renaissance of these high-end adaptations. So that's all fantastic. So let's be appreciative. Well, and of you that. know what? Also, I would say at least at least in the case of Partners in Crime, Partners in Crime has its charms. Oh, it absolutely does. And I would argue that this episode had its charms too. I just have to pull out, and this is a quote within Mark Aldrich's book that I loved which was a contemporary review by the Daily Express on the Agatha Christie Hour in general. And it's it called it a charmingly 1930s flirtation that every woman and every sympathetic man will enjoy. <laughs> and I don't think I've ever heard a better euphemism for a gay man than a sympathetic man. <laughs> As a sympathetic man myself, I kind of love it. Yeah. So a couple of things about this episode in particular, I I thought it was worth noting that the writer of the episode, T.R. Bowen, would go on to write eight of the 12 
BBC Joan Hicks and Miss Marples. So that's interesting. Not only did this lead indirectly to those Miss Marple adaptations, but the writer of this episode wrote most of them. That's very interesting. uh, Yeah. Also, this is a little bit of trivia, really arcane Christy trivia here, but with another Parker Pine episode having aired before this one, and that was the case of The Middle-Aged Wife, which aired first of the 10 episodes, the airing of this episode, 5 of 10, was the first time that an Agatha Christie character had appeared in more than one television production played by the same actor. And that actor was Maurice Denham, who plays Parker Pine. Denham is is a great presence. He was he's one of those old school character actors. He has a fantastic voice. Apparently, he worked a lot in radio, and you can tell because his voice has that rich tone to it. He just feels like someone who honed his voice as a separate instrument. I also thought it was curious that Maurice. This is not the first Agatha Christie Maurice Denham appeared in. He actually was in the Alphabet Murders, which we already mentioned on this episode. I cannot believe I'm mentioning it twice. The one in which Tony Randall played Poirot. And he played Inspector Jap. He does a charming job of Parker Pine. And I think the adaptation, it is it is very faithful. And they have to fill it out a little bit because the story is slight. And they do that mainly in terms of filling out the major's boring life before he goes on his adventure. We see a lot more of the major in his boring town. And it's funny because he's miserable. He hates the, the chit chat and the small talk that he is forced to have with everyone around him. There are a lot of shots of him and his dog. Also in the adaptation, not black men who attack <laughs> Frida Clegg. No. So that's good. That was a good change. I support that change. And also... And I thought this was such a curious choice within the story itself. And I think the adaptation really made an improvement here. Christie actually mentions Frida Clegg's name up front within the Parker Pine story. So when we're overhearing Parker Pine speak with his vampy seductress about who they need for him to meet and who they're going to pick to essentially match with him, we don't know quite what they're talking about yet, but we get Frida Clegg's name. So we right. know so the we second know, that we're we know introduced. It's a setup, right? We know it's a setup. The second that, even though yes, he says he's going to one place and then he hears her screaming, we know once we hear Frida Clegg's name again that oh, okay, well, this is actually all Parker Pine's doing, and the episode at least doesn't clue us in, so that perhaps a gullible <laughs> viewer might at least experience mm-hmm, right. some pleasurable suspense in a way that is just not possible in the story. In that, again, we're covering this for Ariadne Oliver first and foremost. I thought it was worth pulling out my favorite quote of hers within the episode. And it was interesting to see someone else portraying Ariadne Oliver than Zoe Wanamaker, of course, and portraying her in a way that felt a little bit more faithful to her description within Christie's series. But she says to Parker Pine when he's chiding her for her stereotypical concoctions and whatnot, she says, life should imitate fiction wherever possible. I thought that was a really good line. It's funny. I believe that that line is not in the original story. All right, well, that brings us to an end of the case of the discontented soldier, our debut foray into the Parker Pine Investigates collection. We will be back. I have higher hopes for future stories. 
Join us next time for another short story. And this one is, as opposed to the first in the series, actually the last in the series. We are doing our final story within the Dolly Bantry dinner dinner party. party. That is within the 13 Problems collection. Yes, we have two stories left, but there is only one story to complete the never-ending dinner party. So we're very excited about that. The the Louis Brunwell dinner party at the Bantries. (laughs) And that story is The Affair at the Bungalow. So join us for that one. And in the meantime, you can always contact us, email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame or on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. You can also find us on Instagram at All About Agatha. And you can find Catherine on Twitter at Bobcat. And do take a moment to rate and review us. We really appreciate getting those ratings and reviews. And we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.